Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Happy Thursday. Grab a stool for the Three Martini Lunch. Hope you had a wonderful Christmas with your family and friends. We are back at it today with the third installment of our year-end Three Martini Awards, the Crystal Martinis being handed out. After today, we'll be halfway through this prestigious award season. You know, early next year, you've got the SAG and the Golden Globes and eventually the Oscars. Nothing on us. These are the most prestigious (laughs) awards that uh, get given out any year in particular. We're also brought to you today by Plexiderm. Go to tryplexiderm.com. Use our code MARTINI for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. So our categories today, Jim, are worst scandal, best political theater, and worst political theater. So let's dive right in with the worst scandal of 2019. So, Greg, I know we're supposed to say Ukraine and something that triggers the impeachment process probably would count in most years as the worst scandal. Um, but I, I, I think there was actually something much bigger and much more consequential uh, than even the impeachment process. And the president's strong arming of, of Ukraine and efforts to get Ukraine to investigate Biden and do it all through Rudy Giuliani. That was bad. Um, but I think the abandonment of the Kurds in, in Syria was the worst scandal of the year. I think it's the worst scandal of the Trump administration so far. Uh, and I believe it's hugely consequential. I think it sent a very clear, all from the beginning of this administration, there have been an echo of the same complaints that many of us on the right had about the Obama administration. We were tougher on our allies in some cases than we were on our enemies. Uh, and in the case of the Trump administration, well, the good news is we've gotten tougher on some places like Iran. But we've gotten very soft on Russia and some other ones and, and uh, in, in other key ones. Rolling out the red carpet for uh, the Taliban, which was pretty egregious, North Korea. But in this one, we basically told one of our allies who had fought shoulder to shoulder with us against ISIS, a clear present danger with the most you know, serious terrorist threat in the world. And the Kurds, you know, did a lot of the ground fighting, ugly stuff, high casualties, a lot of blood lost. And they were always worried about uh, Turkey coming in and smashing. Them. You know, I, I've ranted on this podcast a great deal about the way the Turks see the, the Kurds. We told them, dismantle some of your defenses. We will be there to protect you if the Turks ever try to do something. And then seemingly after one conversation with uh, Erdogan, President Trump said, you know what, we're out, withdrew everybody, let the Turks go in and smash them. Uh, Some release of some ISIS prisoners, but I think just even more, um, I mentioned earlier in our podcast series, uh, Jennifer Griffin talking to a U.S. Special Forces soldier who said that for the first time he felt ashamed of his country, that they had abandoned an ally uh, when they needed it most. Well, Erdogan is not our friend. Uh, I know he kept saying, oh, it's a NATO ally, it's a NATO ally. Well, Turkey stopped behaving like a NATO ally a while ago. Um, it is basically a sense that Trump wanted to get us out of the Middle East. He did not want to, uh, he did not care about the consequences. And it's going to be a long, next time we need allies in this region, people are going to look to the Kurds and say, why should we fight alongside the Americans? You get their back. America will not have your back when you need it. And they will abandon you as soon as it becomes politically convenient. Um, is a dark mark on American history. And I think it's going to be eventually we'll be paying the piper for that one for many years to come. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Good choice. And uh, this is an issue that brought together some pretty strange bedfellows. It's not often you get Tulsi Gabbard and Rand Paul on the same issue, but uh, they're about uh, getting out of foreign entanglements and uh, and that sort of thing. And then on the other hand, you've got a lot of people in both parties who were very, very upset and rightly so about Trump's acquiescence to what Erdogan wanted to do. And I'm not really sure what Trump got in return for that. I don't know if this was 
something that had been negotiated in the past uh, with the release of Pastor Brunson or some other uh, aspect of it. But uh, other than Trump perhaps being sympathetic to the argument that the U.S. should be gone, which was actually his argument at the time, uh, I'm not sure what the, the plus was for the U.S. The plus for Turkey here is obvious, and the minus for the region uh, going forward is definitely significant as well, as you said. As for me, I had a tough choice here, and uh, I think I'm going to save one possibly for a different category. Uh, I'm going to go with the one that uh, has just blown up this month, and that is the FISA abuse. And technically, it happened not in 2019, but the the shedding of the light on it finally did, thanks to the report from uh, Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz. And basically what we learned here, and we talked about it just last week on the podcast, is essentially the FBI is down to the point of trying to explain whether gross negligence or actual nefarious intent on the part of the FBI was the reason for a slew of mistakes, 17 ultimately, and all these different FISA applications and renewal applications, uh, changing the fact of whether Carter Page uh, was a CIA uh, contact. And then they took that out and said he wasn't in one of the FISA applications. It was just an ugly, ugly process. Everybody's trying to cover their backside here. And in the end, it makes you wonder whether the FBI can be trusted. And obviously, you got a lot of folks saying, well, don't compare this with what happens with uh, everyone else. This was uh, different circumstances. It was a presidential campaign. But uh, if you're under warrant from the FBI, you have to wonder now, Jim, and we've talked about the FBI in a number of different contexts before from the need to create Disney CTU because they failed to follow up on things like the Orlando shooter and the Boston Marathon bomber and other shooters along the way. The, the one in Texas actually called the FBI, the one from Midland and Odessa this year. You have to wonder what's going on there. I know there's a lot of good people, and just because a lot of people did something that was either extraordinarily negligent or actually intentionally harmful, we'll let folks figure that out since Horowitz didn't get to the bottom of it. John Durham probably is. But if, in fact, uh, the government, particularly the Justice Department, which I believe was highly politicized under the Obama-Holder era at the Justice Department, that's a really sobering, chilling thing to know that uh, the FBI is potentially willing to play politics here. Either that or they're just really, really horrible at their job. And I'm not sure that should be of any comfort. Yeah. uh, I think, by the way, I think listeners are going to like your selection a lot more than mine. But I just want to observe that, like, when you're in a position of responsibility— and your duties are going to end up stepping into the realm of, of partisan politics and partisan passions. We used to have this mentality in life that you got to bend over backwards to avoid the, like the old thing, you know, creates the appearance of a conflict of interest. And every now and then you'd hear people say, well, look, the appearance of a conflict of interest is not the same as a conflict of interest. Sure, it looked bad that Hunter Biden was making a whole lot of money from a uh, uh, you know Ukrainian gas uh, uh, company while his dad was pressuring the Ukrainian government. But it doesn't actually mean that there was anything wrong. Going, well, the reason people tell you to avoid the appearance of conflict of interest is that way you don't have the allegations of a conflict of interest, right? You don't, you're, not, you're never put in that situation where you have to say, okay, this looks bad, but it really wasn't that bad because of X, Y, and Z and stuff. Um, what we saw there with the FISA applications is a, a, a perfect example of you know, the, the sneaking suspicion that if this was not an organized conspiracy to get Trump, and at the very minimum, this was groupthink, and that there was nobody involved in this process who'd say, well, wait a second, why are we changing this? Wait a second, maybe maybe Carter Page is just a, a guy who has you know strange views on Russia. Like Being pro-Putin or pro-Russia is not itself a crime in this country. 
It does not give people reason to start listening to your phone calls and stuff like that. It was a, it ended up confirming a lot of people's worst suspicions about the FBI. And again, just like my conversation, my comments about the Kurds, it's going to be a long time before the FBI can restore its reputation in the eyes of a lot of people in this country. Maybe Mickey Mouse should be the next FBI director. I don't know. That's like, Some would say we'd already been there. Good point. Good point. We've been walking in the woods. Yes. So many questions. <laughs> yeah, just because it makes Greg laugh, I might do the entire rest of this podcast in Mickey Mouse's voice. <laughs> I'm just thinking that Goofy's the tallest one, though. So uh, maybe that's the uh, appropriate <laughs> way to go with Jim Comey. Man. Oopsie. It... Guess we lied on the FISA application. <laughs> Disney lawyers on line two. I'm going to have to knock it off, Greg. Well, let's talk about something else that happens. Every year, we get a new year. And with New Year's come New New Year's resolutions that usually last about a week or two, whether it's exercise or diet or something like that. But uh, when it comes to making our appearance look a little bit better, it could not be easier to actually keep that resolution to try and look a little more youthful, a little younger. Because with each passing year, we all get older and oftentimes look a bit older. But doesn't have to be that way because now that's changed due to Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, your crow's feet, and those under-eye bags in just minutes. It's the easiest New Year's resolution you can make. All you have to do is apply the serum to any problem areas, and within 10 minutes, you'll look very different. You'll look much younger. And the best part is there's no surgery, there's no Botox involved, it's all natural. You know what Botox is short for? Botulism toxin. Yes. Right? Every time you hear about some terrible food poisoning, oh, God, you hear about that? 20 people got sick. Botulism. People are injecting it under their eyes. That doesn't sound like wise to me. Simply put, you will be blown away by the results of Plexiderm. Ring in 2020 with confidence, knowing that Plexiderm is going to give you smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. The best part is it goes on clear, so no one will even know that you're using it. You can leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles in 2019 with Plexiderm. Goodbye, bags and wrinkles. Hello to the new you. Go to triplexiderm.com and use our code MARTINI for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code MARTINI. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code MARTINI at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code MARTINI. All right, Jim, one of our favorite categories each year, best political theater. What tops your list? I think it was actually kind of a a weaker year than usual when it comes to good political theater. Uh, But I'm going to go, again, fairly recent. Um, Greg, I loved the Conservatives Actually ad done by Boris Johnson over in the UK. (laughs) They enjoyed big wins in the uh, British elections over there in uh, uh, early December. Um, It was funny. Uh, It made its point very clearly. It was it was one of the it was about a three minute ad. And Greg, you know, again, most of the time, you know, I'm Buck Johnson and I believe in a stronger America, you know. James Carville used to joke that the difference between a positive ad and a negative ad is that a negative ad has a fact in it. Yes. <laughs> because, you know, positive ads like, I want better schools. Well, great. Everybody wants better schools. The question is, how do you want to get there? You know? Um, and so, but all of a sudden, this is one with, first of all, it, it starts out by parodying love, actually. Um, you know, he plays the, the Carol, he says it's Carol Singers, and he, you know, 
bit by bit, he's showing off these little, these large cardboard pieces of paper, which he's written a message. And the woman at the door is kind of nodding and he kind of makes her laugh, but doesn't say anything. Right. So you, and I don't know about you. I found myself kind of like just leaning forward, wanting to know what each next placard was going to say. And we knew there'd be something funny. We knew there'd be some sort of payoff there. Uh, and I showed it to a couple of people who were not that into politics and all of them enjoyed it. So uh, people who were not big fans of Boris Johnson. So it was clever. It was funny. Um, it was exactly what a political ad should be. It was creative. And uh, so I think that was the the best ad and thus the best political theater of 2019. And we'll never know what impact that specific ad had, but we know the results of the British parliamentary elections, the best uh, results for the Tories since the Thatcher era, the 1980s, and the worst night for Labour since the 1930s. Now, Labour had some things going against it other than the Love Actually parody, but uh, uh, certainly didn't hurt. Uh, Brexit was a key issue and... Uh, Boris Johnson knew that. I think he had a much better uh, feel for the pulse of the British voters than uh, than Labour did. So we'll see if they actually get it done. That might actually end up being a end-of-the-year award for 2020, but we'll see. Jim, as for me, I had a tough decision here, too. Man, there were some good opportunities. Most of the time, the Democratic presidential debates were boring. They were tedious. It was a competition of who could uh, draw out their different lines from their policy papers or just pander the most. And so when you actually get an honest moment and one that grabs your attention, they were few and far between, but one of them came in July at the second Democratic presidential debate. It was the first debate after Kamala Harris went after Joe Biden for allegedly being a racist, for working with segregationists and opposing forced busing back in the 70s. Remember, that little girl was me, that whole thing. Well, the issue came up again in the second debate, CNN hosting. They brought Biden and Harris back together and they clashed. And then uh, Jake Tapper pivoted over to Tulsi Gabbard, who had made a statement in defense of Biden, but hadn't been a big player in the debate since that June debate. And then she went after Kamala Harris in a way that no one, especially Kamala Harris, was expecting. Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Jim, not only did Tulsi Gabbard and her team do their research, she was able to pile so many different uh, allegations and facts in there that there was no way Harris could respond to all of them. Harris caught completely flat-footed, afterwards said, well, of course she went after me, I'm top tier, and she's barely on the stage, and well... That may have been true at the time, but uh, that I think we can point to as the beginning of the end for Kamala Harris, that and her inability to stay consistent on controversial issues like Medicare for All and whether she was for it or not. But uh, in the end, Kamala Harris, who was riding high for a lot of 2019, not even in the race at the end of the year. And if you want to point to uh, the wound that never stopped bleeding, I think it's that one. Yeah. And, you know, usually when you see, um, you know, a, a really tough attack, uh, when somebody kind of gives a litany of charges, very often you'll get, okay, well, so, you know, I, I, the morning after that uh, debate, going back to say, okay, was it really that bad? And I went back and I checked. Gabbard did not exaggerate on any of them. 
It wasn't a, well, some critics allege. No, this, these, these are all fair shots on them. Uh, and I think that probably was one more reason why, why Harris didn't have a very good response because it was accurate. <laughs> you know, it was pretty much uh, that was the, the truth of, of the decisions Gabbard made. And maybe this reflected a time when she was a little more trying to establish her tough on crime, uh, uh, you know, reputation or what it was, whatever it was. Uh, they were all fair hits. Whether or not you want to say this is the sole reason why Kamala Harris uh, lost, uh, I, I also kind of feel like the uh, the Maya Rudolph impression on Saturday Night Live. You're out of order. Out of order. Sundays on TNT. Um, <laughs> that, that you know, that ultimately, that she came on really strong in that first debate. She absolutely clobbered Biden, but she had an absolute glass jaw. I think this is what happens when you uh, rise in California Party Democratic politics. You get used to having the wind at your back. And uh, man, it it was a, you know, a moment that you could argue Kamala Harris never really recovered from. No, I think that's exactly right. And I find it fascinating that the second she dropped out after bouncing along the bottom for the last few months of the campaign is how many people, particularly in the professional D.C. media, were uh, saying, oh, what about a Biden-Harris ticket? Or what about Harris as uh, Biden's attorney general? And I'm thinking, did you miss the June debate? I don't think she's on the Biden shortlist for anything. Maybe somebody else will want to tap her for something if the Democrats win the White House. But I don't see that uh, healing anytime soon either. Yeah, I, I mean, well, look, the coming year will reveal that. But I have a tough time seeing that scenario. You know, that's if if Biden is picking Harris, I mean, something went wrong with one of the other possible options really badly. All right. On to worst political theater for 2019. Jim, what tops the list? Well, I, I went with the Democratic debates. And uh, I, I actually, so look, you know, I'm a man of the right. I, I There's a scenario in which I, I have voted for Democrats in the past. I think the last one was Anthony Williams, who was running for mayor in D.C. Um, D.C., which is, you know, 90 percent Democrat. Uh, Williams was by the standards of, you know, by, by the standard of Marion Barry, a really competent, uh, DC mayor. So it takes a great deal to get me to vote for the Democrats, but I'd like to see the Democrats have a good primary. Um, I'd like to see them have for, for the health of democracy. And I think the lesson of 2019 is you can't have a good debate with 10 candidates on stage. I, I think you could argue the 2016 cycle demonstrated the difficulties of having one where everybody felt like they got a fair shot, where everybody felt like they got a ch- enough time on stage. I think you top out around six or seven. Problem number one is the DNC decided they were going to try to be fair, and I'm making air quotes as I say that, by having a really low standard because they didn't want to say, well, we're only going to have the big names. We, you know, if, you can, if you can raise enough donors and you can hit 1% in those early debates, you're going to get invited and they'll have, you know, that's why we had two nights uh, debates over, you know, 10 candidates each, 20 candidates, right? And you still had people whining about how it was unfair. And this was our lone introduction to the likes of, you know, Michael Bennett, Tim Ryan, um, Irving Schmidlap. Uh, <laughs> now, here's the thing. Were there some advantages to this? Yes. I don't know about you, Greg. I, I, I would watch two hours of Marianne Williamson talking just because you never know what's going to happen. It's unbelievable. And I sit there and I'm thinking, is this the way Trump voters felt in 2016? Like, wow, this person is like, you know, they, they seem like they're high or they're crazy or they're holding a seance and they're going on about dark spiritual forces and stuff. Like you're riveted by how utterly bonkers what, what you're watching is. And maybe that's how, maybe that was part of uh, Trump's appeal. Large stretches of time would go in between uh, times candidates would appear. Uh, I think Andrew Yang has every right in the world to be livid with the way he was treated, particularly by MSNBC. The other networks were a little better, but not by much. It was very clear. They, they were most interested in talking to the front runners. They did not care about some of them. 
uh, about the, le- the lesser known candidates, which kind of raised the question of why do you have 10 people on stage if the moderators are only going to ask questions of the other front runners? The networks that you wanted to do one thing, the party wanted to do another. I think if you'd you know, broken it up into my ideal debate would be like five or six people around a table with no moderator and you just let them talk to each other. No studio audience. Don't let anybody applaud. Don't let anybody look for, you know, canned laugh lines or canned applause lines or anything like that. Just let them talk and ask questions of each other and see how they go. And there's, you know, once in a while, maybe like once in a while have just a stream flash that gives them a topic and just see where they go with all that stuff. And, and I think that'd be much more interesting and revelatory than the questions we get. And uh, I'm pretty much required to watch all these debates for National Review. It's part of my job. I don't, you know, I, that's fine. I'm very happy to have my job. But I think they do a terrible job of informing voters and the DNC basically should be, you know, sent off on some iceberg and float away or something. They're really disappointing. Hopefully the new year will bring some slightly better ones. But, um, well, you thought the DNC did a lousy job in 2016. They had a low bar to clear and they've managed to not clear it. (laughs) You mean you weren't riveted by Rachel Maddow's opening question to Elizabeth Warren? Are you going to try to convince some of your Republican colleagues to convict President Trump? That didn't uh, that didn't change the whole dynamic of the campaign for you? If she said no, it would be kind of interesting. (laughs) Even the candidates are, are getting tired of it at some point, because I think Warren was basically saying something to the effect of, well, yeah, OK, now let me use the rest of my minute or however much time I have talking about something that's not blatantly obvious. So, uh, yeah, not getting a lot of help from the media. My number one choice was a specific aspect of this, and that's uh, Beta O'Rourke and his whole campaign. Uh, was kind of political theater. We've talked about him jumping on uh, the tables. Uh, there was, of course, the uh, the debate where he said, yeah, we're going to come after your AR-15s and your AK-47s. And apparently every Democrat in Virginia thought that was a great idea because uh, they're about to do that legislatively. But uh, clearly he was desperate at that point. He went on a town hall with CNN and talked about Uh, how, yes, uh, end of uh, tax-exempt status for churches if they don't uh, embrace the LGBT agenda and so forth. And so just pandering, pandering, pandering uh, across the board. Um, Since it was so close to yours, I'm not going to make that my official one, although that was my my top choice. Uh, One that I want to talk about, though, is uh, Greta Thunberg. Uh, She is the 16-year-old Swedish activist. Uh, Not long ago, she was named the Time Person of the Year. Uh, President Trump, I think, made an ill-advised choice to kind of, first of all, even pay attention to her, much less uh, mock her in, in a way that he did. Mocking her, I think, is is highly counterproductive. Uh, the, the reason I think this is bad political theater is because some random 16-year-old is not suddenly the centerpiece of an entire worldwide movement. Uh, what's really artificial about all this is how suddenly all these other groups that you never hear about when she's being reported on in the news swoop in and uh, bankroll everything. She's going from town to town, speech to speech, to the UN and all these other places. She's absolutely the face of the climate change emergency resist movement right now. And uh, nobody really understands how she got there. I'm The fact that she's passionate about this, that's fine. I disagree with her. I don't really particularly care about that. I'm not going to attack her for that. But the fact that uh, clearly she's being used by a lot of people is what really annoys me. It's kind of like how in- instantly the gun control kids from Parkland had this massive national platform and, and the media acts like it's entirely organic and grassroots. That's not the way it is. And it's really annoying. Greg? How dare you? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to put that in there. Here we go. How dare you? <laughs> you have stolen you? my dreams and <laughs> chewed up my future. And, and I weep. Yeah. 
Look, uh, time passes. Time stops for no man. Uh, I come day by day. I get closer to having a teenage child. Um, so I don't. I wouldn't pretend to be an expert on teenagers, but I know I'm getting closer to that, Greg. And right now, psh, I wouldn't allow a teenager to control the remote, control the television. Never mind, let them control <laughs> policy on you know all around the world. And yeah, it's going to hurt us among our te- our teenage demographic listeners. So you're saying teenagers shouldn't be at the forefront of our political debates? How they dare you? Yeah, as many people have observed, she is a sword and a shield. Right? She gets to go out there. Earlier this month, she said, you know, you know, leaders who don't believe will be lined up against the wall. And, you know, that, that kind of has a connotation of executions <laughs> and fascism. Greta. And she's, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. You know, this is why you don't put teenagers front and center in charge of political. But if the moment you criticize her, how can you attack a child like that? You know, by the way, I think the most egregious use of can't believe you're attacking politicians, children uh, came for criticism about Hunter Biden. <laughs> yes. Guys in his 40s, right? <laughs> Almost 50. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, don't make fun of Greta. I, I, you know, I think most, even those of us who are who are not fans, would probably acknowledge she's got a lot of adults around her who probably don't have her best interests at heart. Let kids be kids. Let them be active. For those who are like, oh, you don't understand. It's different for today's kids and today's teens and today's young people. Their future is being destroyed by you know by global warming and climate change. How can you not? And I'm like, wait, you know, we grew up with the Cold War, Greg. Right, you know the baby boomers were ducking under the desk, saying, "Don't worry, that that plank of wood will protect you. Dig a hole in the backyard; that'll survive. That'll help you survive a nuke." As if you don't get eaten by radioactive zombies when you get out. We've always had dire threats along the future. We've always had things where you know the hole in the ozone layer, which by the way got smaller uh, this the smallest it's ever been this year. Look, you know we're we're going to be able to work this stuff out. You know the, the idea of this all this doom saying. My suspicion is that has a factor in depression rates and suicide rates and drug addiction rates if kids are constantly being told that their future is being taken away from them. But hey, what do I know, Greg? I'm not Times Person of the Year. Nope, we haven't won that for years. Yeah, not since 2006. Oh man. Well, Greta, enjoy the honor. Hope you get away from the people who are using you. But uh, anyway, just enjoy the rest of your childhood, Jim. You enjoy the rest of your day. I'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Hope you enjoyed today's installment of the Martini Awards for 2019. And join us again on Friday for the next installment on the Three Martini Lunch.